how do we get to our goals? How do we resist and avoid temptation so that we can align our behavior with our deeper values rather than just being pushed around by things that don't really matter but give us short-term pleasure? If you can restructure your life so that you're not exposed to temptation in the first place, it's far, far more effective for sustainable behavior change. And that's the path that doesn't take much willpower in the moment, much like white knuckling and straining and resisting temptation. For that reason, it's so, so important to constantly be examining your values, know what kind of life you want to live, know who you want to become. And then you can see how each behavior that you're executing across your day fits into that vision. Today, I'm talking nerdy about your brain's decision-making process with Tobias Johnson. In this conversation, we're diving into the different factors that influence your brain's ability to make decisions, such as how much effort is required, when that effort will be required, how much time it will take, and other factors such as your emotional state and relationship with discomfort. Toby holds a first-class honors degree in neuroscience and has already had some research published. He's also off to Oxford University this year to pursue postgraduate studies in psychology. Before you dive in, I would love if you could hit pause and leave us a five-star review and a written review on whatever platform you're listening on. In doing so, you help get this podcast into the ears and brains of more listeners like you. Now let's dive in and start talking nerdy. Do you want to tell the listeners how we met or do you want me to tell them? Because I think that you're a very unique guest in that way. So I met Alex in a freezing cold tub of water. Or was it the hot tub of water? I actually can't remember. It was a hot tub. Yeah. It was the hot tub. Oh, okay, that's more relaxing then. That's a more scenic event. So Toby and I met at a meditation center called the Astana here in Bali, which actually has a spa attached as well. And our mutual friend Connor introduced us. And it turns out that Toby is also a brilliant neuroscientist and his area of research is fascinating and as i started to stalk him on social media i realized that he was also the perfect guest to have on this podcast so thank you so much toby for coming on and being willing to talk nerdy to me yes let's do it let's talk nerdy what led you to your area of research in studying neuroscience and specifically decision making well i actually started off in business school at university that was the first thing I went to so I did six months of business school but I wasn't interested in it at all I just kind of did it because I felt I had to you know it's just what you do when you're thinking of what to do when you leave school you're oh, I'll do a commerce degree so I started off in that hated it and I didn't do any science in school but I was always really interested in it that it was just really interested in the mind and the brain so I knew that I wanted to study that so I went to beg the course coordinator for neuroscience to let me in. And she was like, no, like you haven't done any science. So she just said no. And I ran to her office and like just begged her in person. And she finally let me in. And then I've just been studying it ever since. But I don't actually know why I was interested in it. And I feel like the things that you're most fascinated by, you don't really know why. You can't put your finger on it. Someone just asks you why you're interested in it. And you just, I don't know, I love it. That's kind of what studying the mind and brain was to me. I've just always been mind blown by everything about it. I would think it's more like the reverse though. I would ask people why they're not interested in 
the brain and the mind because to me the brain clearly has some role in creating the whole world that we experience every single thing humans care about emotions politics you know like economics all this stuff that um we get focused on care about is created by the brain we experience it and our brain creates our direct experience in some way or it's at least associated with the creation of that so everything we care about is associated with the brain how are people not like lining up to study neuroscience i don't i just don't know i don't get it either i'm personally of the belief that if we all have brains we should know how they work and know how to use them for us rather than against us and as you were getting into your neuroscience program when you were in school, you ended up eventually doing research on decision making. And I'm curious if you can share a little bit about what led you to that line of research specifically. When I left my undergraduate degree, before I started actually doing academic research itself, I worked in the fitness industry as a personal trainer, and I did some online coaching work too. And I noticed that a huge reason that at least coaches would blame their clients for not getting results is they would say, oh, my client's lazy. You know, my client's just not working hard. They're, they're just lazy. And the coach's solution to that is usually, oh, you know, you need to work harder. Uh, just try harder, you know, put in some work. They give these motivational speeches forcefully. And that always struck me as like strange because it clearly doesn't work for most people. But the coaches just like persist on this one strategy and there's not much else people are aware of. And that's why I was so keen to get into decision-making research because I, I thought there must be some practical strategies out there that allow people to shift to become, you know, less lazy. The term they use for that in psychological research is um, effort discounting. The fact that we don't like putting in work you know, it's colloquially called laziness, but we call it effort discounting. Just like a, how, you know, a shopkeeper will discount the value of items at their store if they want to sell them. We discount the value of rewards that require effort to obtain. We don't like working for rewards generally. And there are, it turns out, a lot of strategies you can use to overcome that and improve your decision making. Amazing. I'm so excited to dive in to all of that with you. And I'm also super curious if you can share a little bit with listeners about what exactly it was that your research specifically was doing. Yeah. So my research was actually on effort discounting, this tendency we have to take the path of least resistance. And what we were investigating is whether we are less lazy, in other words, like discount effort less when we imagine the effort to be further into the future you would expect this but there was no formal research showing this in a, in a well-established research paradigm we ended up showing that individuals if they imagine effort to be immediate in other words like they consider oh should i exert effort now for a reward they are much more averse to exerting effort than if they imagine effort to be at some time in the future like in a week's time or in a month's time um it's much more palatable and you're like okay i'll commit to that um and like intuitively everyone knows this if you are asked to do something that lies like a month in the future it's much easier to commit to you know you're asked to present something for example 
and it's in a month's time, you're just like, yeah, sure, do that, even though it entails a ton of work. But if it's right now, it's more aversive. And this line of research, I think, adds another explanation to procrastination, which is usually explained just in the context of like rewards and how we don't like waiting for rewards. There's a theory called temporal motivation theory, and it's one of the main theories that's used to explain why we procrastinate. And it basically posits that we will discount the value of rewards that are in the future. And so unless we're forced to, by a deadline, commit to some work or we you know, approach the rewards in time, we won't value those rewards enough to work on them. And this study that I published alongside my supervisor, um, Steve Most, it adds another component to this explanation. Because if you value effort differently, depending on where it lies in time, if you're happier with effort that is in the future, then by extension, you're always going to push effort further into the future until you have um, a reason not to, like a deadline approaches, and you just can't do that anymore. And so it frames procrastination also in terms of effort. And I think that's useful to know because it's very useful to understand that you don't mind effort so much if it's in the future. You can use that to your advantage by pushing effortful tasks into the future by like a month's time and then finding a way to bind your hands to the mast and commit to them. I want to back it up just a little bit and maybe explain this in let's use an example that's maybe relevant to your work as a coach because a lot of people want to change their habits around exercising and working out and getting in shape. So essentially what your research is showing is that if somebody makes the commitment to, oh, I'll start this new routine a month from now as opposed to tomorrow, it's easier to make that commitment because the perceived effort wouldn't feel as intense as if the commitment had to happen tomorrow. But then what gets in the way of people actually upholding those commitments? Because I think that's where the procrastination piece comes in is like, well, we can always move the deadline a little further along and a little further along when it's something that is self-instilled in the first place. Yeah, yeah. So this strategy, it requires that you have a way to bind your hands to the mast. If you don't have a way to bind your hands to the mast, then you have to act in the moment if it's suitable, or you have to find a way. But if you do, like for example, with my clients that were starting with me personal training, I would always say, you know, let's start next week. And they would be much happier with that than let's do a se- our first session today. Kind of daunting and scary. But if you say, let's start next week, they're like, okay, cool. That's my future self. That'll have to do it. I can defer the responsibility to them. It's much easier to commit to. But yeah, you can't use the strategy unless you have a way to bind your hands to the mast. But I think a lot of effective behavior change is finding those ways to pre-commit. And you don't always have to have something that's set in stone, guaranteed to work. You know, like if you commit to running a marathon, for example, you know, you're forced to train for that marathon. It's an easy way to tie your hands to the mast. But you can also do internal pre-commitments where you make a goal with yourself. And if you set goals effectively, it's like a pact that you make with yourself. And yet it's, it's not guaranteed that you will keep that commitment when the time rolls around. 
but it's much, much more likely that if you make an explicit goal that's well-formed, you will keep that commitment. And I think it's important to think of behavior changes like nudging yourself towards the right decisions rather than having this, you know, atomic bomb that's just going to work every time. Yeah, absolutely. For me, one of the biggest things that's enabled me to meet my goals is accountability and having other people on board and literally making an explicit declaration to the world or at least to the people in my world around this is something that I'm going to be doing. It's something that I had to do with this podcast, actually, because I conceived of this podcast child in January of 2023. And it took me until June, so six full months, to actually get it out into the world. But I spent six months telling everybody in my life, like, I'm making a podcast. It's going to happen. It's called Talk Nerdy to Me. It's whatever. So that I had that external accountability of other people checking in to see like, hey, how's the podcast coming along? When's the first episode coming out? You know, just having that as a form of of tying my hands to the mask, as you say. But I'm curious, what are some of the other ways that someone can do that if it is a goal that they have for themselves, that there isn't necessarily an external deadline that is forcing them to do it? Mm, yeah, well, this opens up, I guess, a bigger discussion of like, how do we get to our goals? How do we resist and avoid temptation so that we can align our behavior with our deeper values rather than just being pushed around by things that don't really matter but give us short-term pleasure. And I think self-control is the most useful way to think about this. You think, how can I improve my self-control? Because that literally is the definition of self-control. It's how people can align their behaviors with what they value most rather than those behaviors being pushed around by temptation. And I think the most useful distinction to make with self-control is the difference between what researchers called synchronic self-control, which is self-control that you exert in the moment. You know, like you've, you've left the, the ice cream in the freezer and you're sitting there at 9 p.m. at night and you're thinking like, okay, I can't eat the ice cream. Like I really want it. I'm so hungry, but I can't eat the ice cream. That's synchronic self-control. But there's another form of self-control entirely called diachronic self-control where you just didn't buy the ice cream you knew you would be tempted in the moment so you thought i'm not going to buy ice cream because i'm trying to reduce my intake of sugary foods and i, I don't want to be exposed to that temptation and i think where most people rely on that synchronic self-control where you're resisting temptation in the moment you know, kind of white knuckling your way through it the research shows that that's not a very effective way to control your behavior. And if you can restructure your life so that you're not exposed to temptation in the first place, it's far, far more effective for sustainable behavior change. And so that's that's what I would say first. Like if you're trying to achieve a goal and you're the only one with that goal, there's no you know deadline for a marathon in the future that you have to commit to. Um, think about how to structure your life so that the default behaviors that you need to pursue that goal just become easy. And that's the the path that doesn't take much willpower in the moment, much like white knuckling and straining and resisting temptation. One of the best ways you can do that is by controlling your environment, removing temptation, making sure that your physical environment is aligned with the achievement of your goal. And you can do the same with your social environment, making sure your, your peer groups are also aligned with your goal. 
And if you slowly chip away at your environment in advance, you'll find that before you know it, you're just being pushed towards your goal by the universe. And it doesn't feel like something you have to force out. And I think that's very useful because a lot of people blame themselves. Like, oh, I'm not motivated enough. I'm, I'm just not disciplined. What if you thought it in the complete opposite way about how you could achieve your goal? The thing that you just mentioned that I think is super important to highlight is that our self-talk plays a role in our ability to actually accomplish and achieve the things that we set out to because when we have beliefs about ourselves that we're incapable, that we're not good enough, that we're we're not motivated enough, that we're not going to get it done, all of those things make an impact on our ability to actually execute and follow through with it. So I'm curious how much of the inner work around rewiring the the inner narrative, the inner monologue plays a role in our ability to actually follow through on the commitments that we make when they are further out in the future. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's huge. And a belief like, oh, I'm just not disciplined enough. It's not only a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you believe it, it's just going to become true as soon as you believe it. But it's also such a paradox because the solution that you're seeking to become more disciplined might actually be the reason, the very reason you are failing at your goal pursuit. Because you're thinking that the one solution lies in becoming more disciplined and that's blocking you off from thinking about self-control in this more proactive way where you're not relying on discipline in the moment. You're setting up your life intelligently so as to avoid temptation in the first place. And if you look at how the most effective people at achieving their goals do it, they're setting up their life intelligently. They're using that proactive self-control rather than staying in this reactive mode. You look at how much they exert discipline across the day and it's very, very little. Whereas if you look at the people who are the worst at achieving their goals, those that are low in trait self-control, they exert willpower far, far more frequently than those that are achieving their goals more often. I think that's super helpful to know. And my follow-up question is definitely more of a personal one. I don't even know if there's a question in this as much as a personal share, but when I hear the word self-control or control in general, there's this little rebellious part of me that's like, no, absolutely not. I'm somebody who doesn't like to have a lot of rules, be it external rules or rules that I try to impose on myself. And when I get a little too rigid with the rules that I try to set with myself, because despite the fact that I have this inner rebel, I'm also still very much type A. When I hear that word self-control, that it's a quality that I might need to be cultivating in myself a little bit more. Just in hearing that, there's already this piece of me that's like, no, rebel. So do you think that there's a way we can change our relationship with self-control in such a way that it doesn't evoke that? inner rebel to immediately push it away or self-sabotage or what might be going on there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is is quite common to almost all humans have this in some form. Call it ironic rebound. So if I told you, you know, don't think of a, a white bear right now, just whatever you do, don't form the image of a white bear in your mind and you're trying not to, there's a part of your mind that has to monitor that task that makes it more likely 
but you will end up thinking of a white bear because you have to partially have it in mind to not think about it. And so it just pops into your mind. The, the human brain is just not very good with those negative instructions and it has this rebellious rebound nature to it. If you struggle with that, then I think that's even more motivation to go towards this proactive pathway where you're not relying on that no I can't do it mindset where you know you're exposed to temptation and you have to push it down actively with your willpower and say no I'm not going to have that in the moment and instead you go towards this proactive self-control where you are implementing strategies in advance to avoid the temptation in the first place so that you don't have to have that internal conflict with yourself which you know is not aligned with your personality there's so much research that, that is the solution for pretty much all people pursuing their goals it's just the path that improves life quality the most and it makes you more likely to achieve your goals and sustain them in the long run and so if you have this you know internal rebelliousness it's even more reason to go towards that proactive self-control path rather than the reactive path where you're forced to impose these rules upon yourself that you can't do something which you know is not working currently it also brings up the question of motivation because something that's required for decision making and something that we receive from decision making as well is a hit of dopamine and dopamine is one of the things that facilitates our motivational system so if somebody has a goal that they want to set if they're even in this state of how do I set up my life, how do I create an environment that's more conducive to this proactive form of self-control, but they're lacking the motivation to actually go out and execute those things, what is the first step for them? It actually brings to mind for me uh, a quote by Alex Korb. He was episode two of this podcast, actually, but he has this quote and then something to the effect of decision without action is just a thought. It's just an idea. So if somebody knows that there are action steps that they need to take in order to control their environment, to set themselves up for success, to set themselves up so that they're not in this constant inner battle of like, do I eat the ice cream? Do I not eat the ice cream? How do we get from this being a purely conceptual thing to actually taking action if we feel like motivation is lacking a little bit? I think the first thing you can do is just get clear on the steps forward and try to shrink them down so that you're taking the, the smallest steps first because the steps that you're taking by nature if they're if they are steps of proactive self-control then they're going to snowball and you're going to see progress and that will be rewarding and then you'll want more progress you'll be able to take larger steps and it will just be cumulative identify the smallest things you can do to make changes to your environment and do what we were talking about before. Make a pre-commitment on them. Internally pre-commit. There is a useful way of doing this that's very, very simple called an implementation intention. You can make a pre-commitment to yourself where you identify something that's holding you back. For example, having the ice cream in the freezer. And if you don't want it in the freezer, if you want to exert self-control, proactive self-control, to not have it there, then you make an implementation intention that takes the form of if I pass the ice cream aisle at the supermarket, I will immediately walk past and not look at the ice cream. 
And that way you have a trigger in your mind that's set up in advance and you don't have to make a decision on the spot of, oh, you know, I should have my ice cream today. I've been exercising a lot. You have all this debate with yourself in the moment. You don't want to be making decisions in the moment um, because that takes a lot of willpower. And if you think you are someone who is low in uh, willpower, the ability to, you know, resist temptation in the moment, then you don't want to be relying on that. You want to automate this process. One way you can do that or move towards it is to set these these internal pre-commitments. Identifying small steps and then immediately setting active commitments to execute them. I have a challenging question. And going back to what you shared earlier in terms of the rebelliousness, what was it called? Ironic? Rebound. Ironic rebound. Okay. So if somebody had the intention of, okay, I'm going to walk down this grocery aisle and not look at the ice cream, couldn't that be the same as the white elephant or the white bear or whatever it is, where it then gives more energy and allure and pull to that? Yeah, which is, you would probably want to frame it if you found yourself tempted by this ironic rebound too, is I will just walk past, I will look ahead and walk past. That that way you're framing something in a positive term. You're not including, you know, looking at the ice cream and that goal, you don't have to suppress that behavior that you've activated. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. You you don't want to be triggering that effect in a way, especially if you feel like you're prone to it. Like you said, you have like a rebellious personality and rules tend to just tempt you in the opposite direction. Then you don't want to be framing it in that way. Another thing that you can do that's been shown to be really useful is to use temptation as a trigger for your goal-related thoughts. And what I mean by that is you set up the implementation intention in another way. You say, when I walk past the ice cream, because you know you're going to be tempted by the ice cream in the aisle, when I walk past that, I will remind myself of my goal to stay fit and healthy. And that way, you've kind of transmuted the meaning of this temptation into something that activates your goal pursuit rather than something that leads you astray from it. And that's been shown to be very helpful for people who have something in mind that they want to achieve. And I think it's very useful too, because it it means that you're not tempted by the temptation anymore. It completely reverses the function of the temptation in your brain. That's something similar that I do with a lot of my clients that have anxiety is just reframing the relationship that we have with our triggers. Say, for example, somebody has panic attacks when they get in the car or when they get on an airplane. And every time they get in a car and then they have a panic attack, they're like, oh, fuck, I had another panic attack. Why do I keep doing this? Why am I not healed by now? Why am I blah, blah, blah? That makes it so much harder to actually move forward than when we can say, great, another fucking growth opportunity. (laughs) Let's go so excited for yet another panic attack so that I can continue to work through my anxiety and just that simple like mindset I mean it's not it's simple but it's not easy it's an ongoing practice but being able to be in the practice of that and changing our relationship to it I think makes a really big difference in terms of our level of success and there have been a few things that you've mentioned so far in the podcast in terms of delay discounting, effort discounting, our relationship with time, like how far in the future we see something is coming to fruition or a goal or whatever it may be. 
And I'm curious what else impacts our decision-making process on a day-to-day basis, because emotions play a pretty big role in how much we're swayed to make one decision versus another. And I'm curious what else you can share with us about the influences on our decision-making. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think emotions in particular are one of those extremely underrated aspects of decision-making. Think about any time you make poor decisions. It's like inevitably when you're either emotional or you're fatigued um, or just generally stressed, um, which you could argue as an emotion too. And there's a lot of mounting evidence now that things like procrastination, which is one of the biggest barriers to making good decisions and acting on you know your goals, procrastination is an emotion regulatory strategy where it's not necessarily that you're just like, oh, you know, I'm just gonna not going to do that right now. But you're experiencing a particular emotion that's associated with whatever task you're avoiding. And it's just easier to avoid the task entirely, avoid the triggering of those negative emotions than it is to work on the task. And so you go, you know, watch Netflix or something and get instant relief from those negative emotions, avoid them, and you're rewarded for that. Relief from negative emotions is a form of reward. And that's why procrastination can be so sticky because it's rewarding to procrastinate and it becomes a vicious cycle where it persists. Learning how to regulate your emotions, having some kind of framework that you use to do that, whether it's mindfulness, whether you're using strategies from cognitive behavior therapy or acceptance commitment therapy, these kind of tools in your toolbox very, very important for improving decision quality. Amazing. Are there any in particular that you like to use? Well, I'm a big fan of meditation. I think it's just a very, very powerful way to rewire your relationship to your conscious experiences, including your emotions. And it's not surprising that it's being picked up by, you know, modern day psychotherapy, like acceptance commitment therapy. Huge part of that is mindfulness. Um, mindfulness-based stress reduction that's another part uh, form of psychotherapy they basically use meditation outright as a tool to regulate your emotions but with clients i find cognitive behavioral therapy is very very useful so if you have persistent negative thoughts about something or you're experiencing some kind of negative emotion examining your thoughts thinking of other ways to reframe the situation like you were talking about before, it's so powerful when you have that framing of this is a challenge that will help me grow as opposed to a setback that's only going to harm me. It's like a threat. You can identify your thoughts and then analyze them in a way that replaces those threat type thoughts with, oh, this is a challenge type thoughts and reframe the whole situation and change your subsequent emotions. Psychology is just filled with tools that allow you to do this kind of switch, change your life for the better, improve your decisions. And I don't think it gets enough attention, especially from the fitness space that I'm in. Most coaches just, you know, here's your program, here's your nutrition protocol, good luck. And they don't realize how important it is for clients to be able to regulate their emotions to stay consistent in the long run. Well, I think what you just kind of touched on and the reason why mindfulness is so helpful is because it is the active practice of being with discomfort and being able to 
not only tolerate discomfort, but come to a place where we feel relatively neutral around it and non-reactive to it. And that's something that we're going to encounter whenever we make any sort of change, whether it's a pattern or a habit or a behavior. There's going to be a moment when we start to get really, really uncomfortable. And if we have a relationship with discomfort where we can't stand it, we can't bear it, we can't be with it, that's going to get in our way of being able to make any sort of change because deviating from our status quo is inevitably uncomfortable. You know, we were talking about the example in the grocery store. I was thinking about how the striatum, like the part of our brain that's responsible for habit formation, it gives us a hit of dopamine every time we participate in an old habit or behavior because it thinks that we need that in order to continue to survive. Because whatever we've historically done has worked well enough to keep us alive up until this point in our lives. And the odds are if we continue doing that thing, we'll continue to survive, even if the habit or the pattern isn't helpful. For example, if procrastination is the bad habit that you're trying to break or the pattern that you're trying to break, not only are you encountering discomfort because you're no longer avoiding the thing that makes you feel confronted, but you're also going through a little bit of a dopamine withdrawal because your brain is like, but wait, I thought I needed to procrastinate in order to continue surviving. It's almost like when we go through the practice of really changing our behaviors and changing our habits, we magnify the amount of discomfort that we're going to be going through because the, the effect from our dopamine system is twofold. The withdrawal is twofold. But the good news is that after we can be in the practice of intentionally choosing to be in the discomfort, that becomes the norm, that becomes the status quo that our striatum is then subsequently compelling us towards. We get rewarded for doing things more immediately rather than procrastinating and avoiding them. And that becomes the habit and pattern that our nervous systems are reinforcing. Yeah. And what you say about how we get rewarded for behaviors, like regardless of whether they're currently valuable or not, if we've just done them in the past, is so true. It's so easy to find yourself in a position where you're just doing something every day even that doesn't reward you that much, doesn't feel that good, is not aligned with your values, but you just keep doing it mindlessly. For that reason, it's so, so important to constantly be examining your values, know what kind of life you want to live, know who you want to become, and then you can see how each behavior that you're executing across your day fits into that vision. You're not so easily going to succumb to that, oh, you know, just mindless pursuit of these bad habits that were once rewarding and you kind of just kept them up because you didn't think too much about them. Yeah, absolutely. That's an explicit question that I ask someone before I take them on as a new client. We'll go through the process of, you know, what are your goals? What's your vision for yourself? And then I'll ask, it's going to be really, really uncomfortable to start to change some of this. How willing are you to get uncomfortable in this process? Are you more committed to making the change than feeling good in the short term? Because what's feeling good right now is also causing you more psychological pain than getting through the discomfort and coming out the other side. That's such a good question because, you know, people consider if they're willing to commit to that, like, are they willing to feel short-term discomfort in the pursuit of these higher values? And that is something you want to make explicit. You don't want that to be something that you never acknowledge because 
it's so easy just to push away anything that's uncomfortable like you said if you're averse to discomfort which by nature like it's kind of by definition humans are wired to be averse to discomfort you're just going to naturally pick the path of least resistance unless you make that conscious commitment that yes this is actually worth doing and i'm willing to experience discomfort for the pursuit of this higher goal yeah that's what I think mindfulness and meditation give us is the active training in that. It's being able to sit with the pain in your knee and how much your arm is itching and how hungry you are without reacting to it. I've sat in a few Vipassana style meditation retreats, which is like 10 days of checking yourself into jail and basically handing over your phone, handing over your car keys. You're not allowed to read. You're not allowed to write. You're not allowed to communicate with anyone else there are no distractions it's just you and your own brain did you do the going retreats yeah oh cool yeah i did a couple in new zealand i really feel like it's a form of mental training meditation is a form of mental training in the same way that you and all your beefcakes go to bamboo here in bali this is purely hypothetical and imagination because i don't i don't lift weights but I can imagine it's not like a pleasurable sensation in the moment, but it makes you stronger and feel better for every other aspect of your life when you have to go lift other heavy shit. Meditation is the same way. It's this form of mental training so that the inevitable adversity that we encounter in our day-to-day life doesn't derail us as much. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I think those retreats uh truly transformative because they're like cram courses for meditation and it is kind of something you can cram because the longer you stay silent for consecutively the more concentrated you can get so it's just it's helpful to have that retreat structure somewhere in your calendar year but you know anyone can do this just with a daily practice just improving how mindful they are how willing they are to tolerate and accept in an equanimous way, whatever pops up in their consciousness. And it's beautiful to appreciate life in that way more because you see that even experiences that are traditionally thought of as quite negative have insane beauty in them. And you can appreciate things that you can't appreciate if you're constantly trying to push those experiences away. Absolutely. So If someone wanted to learn more from you or work with you, what is the best place for them to find you? Anything that you share here, I'm going to put in the show notes. Best way to find me online is on Instagram. Find me at at Tobias Johnson with an underscore at the end. And that is basically the only social media presence I have right now. So just there. And if you want to reach out to me, you can. I have a course that I'm going to be launching for online health professionals, health professionals in general, on behavior change, including topics like self-control and the psychotherapy practices that are relevant for improving client adherence, helping your clients actually end up achieving their goals and creating sustainable behavior change. So I'm pumped for that to come out. It's not out yet, but You can follow along and be one of the first ones in. Amazing. And in the next few months, you'll be in the hot tubs of Bali. But what is coming next for you after this? Yes. So hot tubs of Bali till around October. And then 
I'm starting the term at Oxford University in the UK. Uh, I'm going to be studying the reward neurophysiology lab. So we'll be studying how value is encoded by the brain. You know how you look at the world and you look at like a cheeseburger or like some Louis Vuitton shirt or something like that. You know, you see value in it. There's a certain amount of wanting you have these items and things in the world, whether they're concrete or abstract. And it's kind of a mystery how the brain encodes value. Why do you prefer some things over others? And this explains basically all of human action, ultimately. And so I think this research is just absolutely fascinating. And I am beyond excited to start. Amazing. Well, we can't wait to have you back here on Talk Nerdy to Me after you start doing your research and can share even more with the listeners. Yep, let's do it again sometimes. Thank you, Alex. If you loved this episode, help us get it into the ears and brains of more listeners like you by sharing it on social media. When you share on Instagram, make sure you tag me at Alex underscore Nashton. Instagram is also the best place to send me your questions about the episode material and make requests for future topics and guests. New episodes of Talk Nerdy to Me drop every single Wednesday. When you hit subscribe, you'll be notified of new releases so you never have to miss one. Last but not least, this podcast baby would not be possible without Adam Russell. Adam, I am so grateful to have had your support in creating this podcast. Thank you for always being willing to talk nerdy to me.